0: In the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen Amen. please be seated there's an interesting illustration that alan jacobs uses in his book how to think that has stuck with me ever since i read it he writes about the yale political union which is a debate society and the two different accomplishments you might achieve in that group the first is winning someone over to an idea that you truly believe in which one would expect to be an accomplishment in a debate society. But the second is called being broken on the floor. To be broken on the floor is to have your mind changed mid-debate to the other side. So on one hand, it's a significant accomplishment to do such a good job articulating your point that you convince someone else of your rightness. But on the other hand, it is no small feat for you to be open to change and to go through the process of recognizing and then publicly acknowledging that you are wrong. If there's anything to be gained from the example of the human beings in scripture, it is not necessarily in their ability to win, but in their willingness to be broken on the floor. Jacob's a prime example. Our reading this morning, uh, in it, the story of Jacob wrestling with God occurs right in the middle of Jacob's larger story. At this point, he's already stolen his brother Esau's birthright through deception. He's on the run. Esau is following after him with 400 men wanting to meet with him. Rather than face his brother directly, Jacob sends an envoy with a huge gift as a peace offering, gets out of town, and splits his company into two so that there's kind of a 50-50 shot he won't encounter Esau. He's looking to hedge his bets, cover his bases, and control the scenario. Understandably so. That same night we read, Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Of course, it wasn't just some man, it was God against whom Jacob was fighting, And the encounter leaves Jacob not just physically changed, now with an injured hip, but his name changes as well. Now he and the people who were come after him, who are, frankly, the primary audience of this passage, those people will be known as Israel because he had striven with God and man and prevailed. So it's a hero story, correct? Jacob slash Israel is this mighty mythic fighter who can wrangle the divine and win. After all, he's renamed Israel because he prevailed, right? Not so fast. I confess I don't know Hebrew, but I do know how to read people who do know Hebrew. And the name Israel doesn't exactly mean Jacob wrestled with God. In the same way that Mark's gospel opens by saying, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, and then initially quotes Malachi, there is something else going on underneath the surface of the text beyond just the flat description of what's going on. So I'll quote my source here, John Gay, who says, if anything... Israel would mean God fights, persists, exerts himself. God strives to get a person like Jacob to become the kind of person he could be and should be and that God wants him to be and keeps at it in this struggle with Jacob. End quote. Jacob is a struggler. And even in this small story, we can actually see echoes of other parts of his story. He refuses to let go of the man until he blesses him, even after his hip is out of socket. And when we read that, this could be a microcosm for Jacob's whole story. He comes out of the womb, grabbing onto his brother's heel, and fights for his life to usurp his brother in getting the father Isaac's blessing, eventually winning. This is how Jacob functions. He's a scrappy guy who won't back down, and wrestles with whomever he needs to to get his blessing. But in the end, even though he fights all night long and insists on clutching to God until he wins his blessing, his new name is God wrestles with me. And of course, despite all of Jacob's efforts to dodge Esau altogether, they do meet, and the older brother does not greet him with violence, but with love. The next chapter of Genesis has this to say, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. It's when Jacob fought with God and lost that he receives the blessing God wanted to give him. His prevailing is getting what God wanted to give him after giving in to God. Now, in our gospel text, we have another model of striving. Jesus' parable is, as Luke tells us, about their need to pray and not to lose heart. The way we might want to read this is in the way of Jacob, that Jesus is telling his disciples that when you you want to get what you want, you can keep praying, and eventually God will give it to you. Fight for what you are owed. Nothing comes for free in this world, and you should consider your blessings a thing to be grasped. But Jesus isn't giving a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps parable here. He tells it just after an apocalyptic discourse in which he compares the day of the Son of Man to the days of Noah and of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and sulfur and people being swept up and others being left behind. And as a side note, when you read about floods taking people away, being left behind is preferable because otherwise you're drowning in the flood. That's neither here nor there. Let me read the verses before today's gospel as they lead into what you already heard. Then they asked him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. So as a starting point, yes, the widow is crying for justice in the parable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus' intent is to help the disciples know how to get what belongs to them, to get justice against their adversary. I think it's helpful to reflect on the status of widows in that time. Widows had very little. They often did not inherit the family estate when their husbands died and had to beg or do whatever they needed to to, make, to get by. In fact, I actually have wondered this week as I was reading about it if Jesus often thinks of his own mother when he brings up widows, as we assume that Joseph had died by the time of Jesus' public ministry. It's the reason why Jesus needs to look on the cross at the b- beloved disciple and say, behold your son, behold your mother. If Joseph was around, we wouldn't need John to take care of Mary. So Mary, the widow, Jesus' mother, might be in his mind as he thinks about this. In any case, if we think about the widow as us in the context of the disaster Jesus talks about earlier, or even when we find ourselves in tribulations of any kind, we might see ourselves in any number of situations where we're powerless, without standing, and having to persistently cry out for help. This parable is what one author referred to as an even more so parable. Like Jesus is called to consider the lilies who are clothed so well, and won't God even more so care for us, Jesus is suggesting that if an unrighteous judge responds to the pleas of the widow, then won't God even more so the righteous judge respond to the pleas of his people? But if I can hammer this whole persecution-tribulation point home a little bit further, Jesus closes with this question, and yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? The book ends to the parable of the persistent widow are tribulation and when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? The point isn't victory, but perseverance, trusting in God to be faithful, to give what only he can give. Now, as our example, this widow is consistent and faithful in her appeals to the unrighteous judge, compared to whom God is better in both degree and kind. Now, while Jesus asks the rhetorical question, will he, God, delay in helping them? And we assume the answer is no, because that's how rhetorical questions work. There's a reason that Peter has to write that God isn't slow. It's just that with him, a day is like a thousand years. So will he take long? No, but not long in God's eyes. It may feel long to you. And so Jesus's encouragement is for God's people, his Israel, to continue to live into their namesake when those times come. His example of faith is the faithfulness of a widow knocking on the door when it feels like her case will never be taken up. In these two texts, we get this picture of our own wrestling with God. We find ourselves in the midst of being at the end of our rope, and God shows up and we wrestle with him. But in the end, while we are looking to prevail against him and get our way, we find ourselves broken on the floor, as it were. Now, the name Israel doesn't mean that Jacob is this impressive hero who can wrestle the gods, but I don't think it's an insult either, as if Israel is a petulant child who just needs to be put in his place. Because that process of coming to God and laying it all out is actually modeled for us a number of places, not just in the life of Jacob, but time and time again in wisdom literature and the prophetic books. The Psalms are littered with this wrestling. Sometimes the Psalms are saying we're being killed because of our unrighteousness, but sometimes the Psalms are saying we're being killed and we haven't done anything wrong. God, what is going on here? Think about Job. I don't think at the end of the book he's condemned for bringing his case before God after having 40 chapters of his friends poetically chastising him. But he he brings his case before God, and I think he's not condemned for it, but he certainly loses the wrestling match. Job is allowed to say, God, I am being punished unjustly. And God has his response, and it's beautiful, and it's saying, who are you? Tell me, did you make weather? Did you make the Leviathan? But Job isn't punished for asking the question. I want to come around then to 2 Timothy to talk a bit about what this wrestling looks like for us. Now, prayer is obviously one place where we can often find ourselves in this wrestling match with God. I think sometimes the liturgy functions that way, too, when we're saying the prayers and speaking things that sometimes we don't feel like we're doing, and the liturgy graciously carries us through it anyways. But I think in this morning's readings, we find another one. And that location is the God-breathed scripture that we're all so blessed to have access to in ways that Christians from most of the church's history would have died to have access to. Some, of course, did. The Bible is more than just how we gain information about God, our primary source, but in reading it and in the way that we read it, Scripture itself becomes part of the transformational process whereby we receive from God what we need. So Paul gives a list here of the things that Scripture can do for us and the ways that you might want to preach it, that it's useful for teaching and training in righteousness. It does instruct us and help us understand who God is, who we are, and what is good, beautiful, and true. Paul talks about preaching the word of God. He tells Timothy to convince and encourage because sometimes the thing we need from God When we are at the end of our rope is the comfortable words, the encouragement, the good news to the poor that's present throughout Scripture has functioned that way in my life and I hope in yours as well. Oftentimes, Scripture is comfort. And I want to start with all the encouraging pieces that Paul mentions because what I'm about to say might actually feel a little bit harsh without this introduction. So, remember, I do believe that Scripture can be a balm to our wounds and a respite for our weariness. Because Paul also says that scripture is good for rebuke and reproof and for correction. Paul tells Timothy that there will be a time, the beginning of which I'll say is long since past, when people won't want to listen to what scripture says and will accumulate teachers to suit their own desires. Now, another preacher might take this moment to say, that's why you get the pure, uncut truth here, and those other churches are terrible and they're preaching to suit your desires. But I'm not looking outside to tell you that this goes on somewhere else. I'm talking very much about and to myself here. I get very excited when I find some scholar who has put forward an argument about a passage of scripture that I find particularly difficult to believe or follow, and they give me an alternative reading that I can then be loosened from scripture's restrictions. I'm so excited. That was difficult and crazy, and now I have an easier way to do this. Now, that loosening doesn't make them wrong. There are ways in which the church has recognized it has misused scripture. If you want, if you want a case study in this, read Mark Knoll's Civil War as a Theological Crisis and see how scripture has been used to improperly bind people, literally and figuratively. So the loosening doesn't necessarily make someone wrong, but I know that I have to approach such a reading with so much care because more than anything, I want it to be true that I want to prevail over God and get my blessing and do what I want and find that my behavior and my sense of self-righteousness is justified. I want to go through the prophets and find it condemning my enemies, both real and perceived, mostly perceived, so I can put down my Bible and say, that's absolutely right, God is right, look at how bad they are. And nothing could be more toxic for my soul than to find find in Scripture an excuse to further hate my neighbor or even worse, a sister or brother in Christ. I often find that I'm looking for a chance to be like Jacob, to try and gain the upper hand. I won't let you go until you give me what I want, as if what I want is actually what I need, and as if what God wants to give me isn't a thousand times better than whatever I've come up with. Let me put it this way. If you're coming to the God of Scripture, in Scripture, and finding that after wrestling you always come out the winner, I'm not sure you've been wrestling with God because when you wrestle with God, you lose, as it should be. Now, this doesn't mean you have to read scripture and wallow in despair every time you open it. It's not as if every time we read scripture, we should feel broken and despairing. But if you're never broken on the floor, you may not be debating in good faith. Now, we must bring all of ourselves to the text in honesty. We don't need to come submissively and say, God, I don't have any opinion on this matter, and so I'm ready for what you tell me. Bless you if you were able to do that. I find most of the time I am not. The good news is God can take it. He can take wherever we're starting from. But, as Father Martin often says, we're hammered out on the anvil of Scripture, not the other way around. So this morning, I pray that God may break us in the ways in which we need it to be broken. May we live into our namesake Israel, a borrowed name that we've been you know, graciously grafted into, May we live into that namesake and wrestle with God and find ourselves blessed, but not always and probably often not in the ways that we want. May we see God's faithfulness in our striving in the midst of injustice, and may we find in the end that it was God who was wrestling with us and not the other way around. Amen.